morning, New City Church. Good to see you all. Uh, welcome. I'm glad you guys are here. Um, if you're in the cafe with us, I just want to extend a, a greeting to you as well. And so thank you for joining us. And if you're listening or watching online, uh, hopefully this morning, this time is an encouragement for us all. Um, my name is Nick Schreiber. I'm the next-gen pastor here on this, this South Park campus. And, um, and I'm, again, just I get to, the privilege of getting to oversee kind of birth through a college and get to kind of work with the different directors and things and just, just appreciate uh, getting to serve the Lord in that way here. Um, my wife is one of those, those uh, hundreds of women that are off on retreat, and I have four kids, and so, man, we have had a lot of fun uh, this, this, this weekend. Um, you know, and, and man, they got lucky this Halloween, didn't they? They had two Halloween nights, kind of. Like on Thursday, we tried to go into the neighborhood trick-or-treating, made a few houses, got rained out but we went back again Friday. And so that just enhanced, you know, the sugar rush, the junk food. I can't cook, so you have frozen pizza and cereal a lot. Um, and it's just been uh, a ton of fun. Uh, um, but, but man, this, this weekend, was, it's, it, it's kind of, it kind of marks a shift for us, right? You get through Halloween, you get to November, so happy November, um, and now the holidays begin. And so, if you're a, and so if you are anything like me, man, I love this time of the year. Um, I think, you know, pretty soon we're going to have Thanksgiving. We're going to get to Christmas already. I've, I've broken out the eggnog, and I've had some of that. I mean, that's just from here till New Year's is eggnog in my home. Um, I was in Target yesterday, actually, and here, here's a picture I took. Can you, like, already, right? Um, November, whatever it is, second or third, we are... We're already decking the halls, getting ready for Christmas. Um, even my kids in Target, they made the comment, Christmas list. And it's just November. Um, and so there is more time. If you're a kid in this room, there's more time. Um, but I bring that up because, because um, it's interesting how, and, I, and this is my, my you know, every, every sermon you want to have some type of movement from introduction to spiritual parallel. I think this is appropriate for us to talk about because at some point around this time, um, we have this, there's this danger of pushing pause on certain aspects of our life. Um, uh, or not, there's a, there's a tendency, and maybe not a danger always, because sometimes it's appropriate. And so this last week I was talking with my wife, and we were talking through budget and savings, and we want to try some new strategies, but I made the comment. I said, well, let's do that in the, the new year, Right? Um, if you work a certain job and, and a certain occupation and sometime around now, it's mid-November, you start rolling or ramping down projects because you don't want to start anything new until the new year. If you are a parent in this room and you're going, you know what, we've kind of gotten out of whack as a family. We need to try some new things, but it's hard to do it now. What do you do? Let's wait, wait for the new year. Um, and I bring this up because I wonder if, and this is the, the tie-in, I wonder if sometimes we approach our walks with Jesus in a similar fashion, where we will maybe not literally say this, but we will kind of put him on hold, where we'll say, we'll think things like, I'll, I'll really get serious with my walk with Jesus in the new year, um, or we'll put our faith on cruise control. Um, and before we open up to our text this morning, I just want to share kind of a brief journey that God's been taking me on personally over the last five weeks. And it kind of all started with this statement that Pastor Chris made in our Art of Neighboring series. And so during that series, he made a statement that I had heard before, but on this particular time, it just kind of caught me off guard a little bit. And here's the statement. He said, he said, we can't give away what we don't have. 
And I know that he said that because, you know, as we take the gospel, take our lives into the world, into our neighborhoods, we need to bring a gospel that's been real to us and penetrate us, and we live out of the overflow of that. But when I heard it a, a few weeks ago, I thought this, I said, I had this desire in me. I really want to pass on to my kids. I want to pass on to the next generation of faith that's alive and vibrant. But in order to do that, I need to have, and I need to maintain a faith that's alive and vibrant. And I felt in that moment God saying, hey, how you doing, Nick? They'll they'll get it if you show them and model for them, but you need to show them and model for them. And how are you doing? And, And it was in that moment that I just started praying really intentionally, God, would you renew my heart again? And And so a lot of where I've been personally over the last five weeks is God leading my heart back towards him, calling me to adjust, calling me to not to wait anymore, to do the small things better now, to start being more intentional in my family now in order to bring renewal to certain things that I had allowed to get out of balance. The passage that we're going to look at today comes from the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Um, in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, um, I had been starting to read just a little bit of Revelation every day, of, probably five weeks ago, around the same time as all this is happening, and I got stuck. I got stuck in chapter 2 and 3, and in th- these two chapters are these, these letters that Christ gives to the church, right, where God reveals through the Apostle John, while he's on this island, through a vision, his message, Jesus's message to the churches, and he writes a message to this church in Laodicea, and Jesus brings one main criticism against these Christians, and it was this, that they had grown lukewarm, that they had grown complacent in their faith. And please hear me, like, I I did not pick this passage thinking, what's the main thing New City struggles with? Let's, Let's talk about lukewarmness. Like, that's not at all. Like, this, this all started very personally for me, and and as I started thinking about the opportunity to preach today, I, I did wonder if others would need to hear it too. And it's been a great source of meditation. It's been a great source of urgency uh, for me, and I hope for you as well. Now, I know I've, I've given a lot of preliminary comments already. We are going to get to the, the text. Um, but before I do, I think it's good for us to note a few things about the city of Laodicea that will help us as we read the text, because knowing some of the historical or geographical things around the city will help some of the language in the text become even more strong, become even more clear for us. And so here's just a few notes about the city. The city of Laodicea was located in what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, The city was a part of a tri-city formation, and so it was one of three cities in a similar region, and, and, and it was by far the most prominent one. And so Hierapolis was a city about six miles north, and then about 10 miles east you had Colossae, which the book, the letter of Colossians was written to. But those three cities together combined this tri-city area. The gospel, it's kind of reported, came to Laodicea in the mid-50s A.D. through uh, one of Paul's converts named Epaphras. Now, research would say that Epaphras was in Ephesus. He heard Paul preaching, and that's where he responded to the gospel himself. And then Epaphras went back to his home area, Laodicea and Colossae, and started planting a church, started sharing the gospel himself. And he became the, the church planting pastor of the church in Laodicea. Laodicea was wealthy. 
was prestigious, was known for a few things. I mean, it was a banking center, so it was a center of commerce. It was on a major trade route, which just brought lots of things into the city and out of the city. Um, and it was known as a, as a major uh, textile industry. It was famous for this black, clear silk wool. And it w- they would make garments, and it became famous in that region. Um, it also um, became famous for, for being the having a school of medicine that created an eye powder that people would put on and would cure blindness or some form of blindness. And as I say this because it's important, it'll, it'll come back into play, but there was two major drawbacks to the city. The first one, it was located in a region that was prone to earthquakes. And so an earthquake actually does hit the city in AD 60 and destroys much of the city. Um, and the Roman government reaches out to the city and says, hey, we'll help you. We'll give you financial aid to help rebuild. And the, and the wealthy citizens of the city, because they, were, they had a lot of money, a lot of banking industry, they said, no, nope, we're, we're good. We'll do it on our own. And research shows that they, actually, um, that they did rebuild the city, and it actually rebuilt it stronger, better, and more beautiful. Another drawback of the city was that it didn't have a, water, a fresh water supply of its own. And the only water that they had was muddy, murky water. So when people would drink it, they'd often get sick. And so what they had to do is they had to pipe in their water from six miles south through the, the famous Roman aqueducts. Um, and, and because of that, because of the distance the water had to travel to get to the city, it was known for having lukewarm water. And that was even more pronounced because if there's this map here that the other two cities of the Tri-City area... They were known for having amazing water supplies. Hierapolis was known for having hot springs that people would go to for healing. Colossae, because it was on the river, it was known for having cold, refreshing water that would quench thirst, right? And so, and so, you, so all these things are coming into play because as we read the text, this is one of those passages that you'll be blown away by God and the way that he's inspired his word because you go, man, everything is linking. And so now, now let's read. Okay, so if you have a Bible, turn to Romans, or I'm sorry, Revelation uh, chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 14 to 17, and then we'll pause, and then we'll look at the rest in a little bit. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 says this. It says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I'll just pause here for a second. Each of these letters to the churches kind of start in a similar way. They give this statement, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, the angel is this, this kind of this head, this representative of that church, and it kind of links that, hey, there's a spiritual element, like there's a spiritual element all, all over, right? I mean, that's the reality of the spiritual world. And to the angel of the church of this city, Laodicea, write these. And then they, each letter gives a description of Jesus. And in this particular letter, the description of Jesus that God wants us to know is that he's the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. But then verse 15 starts this, the main body of the message. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's a harsh reality check. The main critique, again, is I know your works. You're lukewarm, and I, I'll spit you out. 
their works, maybe they had stopped living them out, or maybe they had just forgotten the why of why they do them. But nonetheless, they were lukewarm, just like the sickly water their city was known for, and there's that reference. I used to think that verses 15 and 16 were teaching that God wishes that we were either hot or cold in the sense that he wishes we were either on fire for him, hot, or honest enough to say we don't want anything to do with him, cold. And that, knowing the context now, is not what he's saying. That's not what we can interpret. What Jesus is saying is, I wish you were cold like the cold waters of Colossae where the water's clean and fresh and, and quenches thirst. Or I wish, I wish your water was like the, the warm springs of Hierapolis where there was, it brought healing, it brought renewal. And both of those types of scenarios, there's purpose, there's blessing, but, but you're lukewarm and, and that's of no good. And, and God warns them and says, your influence, your fruit, your effectiveness has been lost and you're, you're making me, quote unquote, sick by your arrogance, by your indifference. And, and, and if you don't change, judgment's going to come. And that, that reference is spitting out. That's a hard phrase. I mean, honestly, it kind of makes us go, wait a second. This is not a, a statement that we will say that, oh, it's a reference to losing salvation. It's not. It's, again, using the context that these people would know about their water, how it makes them sick, and says, listen, you guys, it's a call to endure it's a call to say, keep going because the way you're living now, your influence, I'm going to take it away from you. I'm going to strip it from you as a church, as people, because you're not living out purpose. You're not bringing blessing as I've called my people to do. But as we look at these verses, I do think it gives some clues, some indication of where the lukewarmness started, where it comes from, where, what the roots were. So what was at the root of their lukewarmness? And I think in verse 17, we see that first they grew self-reliant. I mean, you see, I am rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. And how scary it is when we get to a place in our lives where, I mean, again, maybe we don't say this verbally, but we might live it out where we'll go, I don't need anything. I'm good, right? God, I'm, we're, we're, we're at peace. And but we operate as if we don't need Him. Self-reliance is this outcome of forgetting your need. The further that I drift from seeing my need, that I'm a sinner saved by grace, that, that God, I need you in all things, that, that I can't do this without you, the further I drift from seeing that, the further I'll drift from holding firm to the gospel and from seeing the need of the gospel around me. Self-reliance as a posture is directly opposed to the Christian posture of dependence, so you remember John 15 where he says, abide in me, remain in me, apart from me you can do nothing. And they had grown too self-reliant. They grew too comfortable. And this is, again, that phrase comfortable is one I've been working on in my heart, like myself, going, am I too comfortable? The believers were responding towards God the same way that the city as a whole responded towards the Roman government. We don't need your help. We, we got it just on our own. And when we grow comfortable without proper guards or disciplines in place, it can breed complacency. We can forget the why. We can lose the urgency. And the drift happened. And they didn't even realize. When did it, when did it begin? When did that spiritual rut begin? And the phrase, I think, is, some, is, is somewhere along the way. Isn't that how it happened? That's kind of the nature of these, these, these seasons that we at times can maybe fall prey to or these spiritual ruts. It's like somewhere along the way I, I just stopped making as much time or somewhere along the way I lost sight of what was true or 
somewhere along the, w- the way, my identity got more attached to my job or my accomplishments or my family than it did to Jesus. Or somewhere along the way, I stopped living for heaven and I started fixing my eyes on what's now. And I didn't notice. And, and think of that, about this in certain scenarios. So like when you think about your alignment on a car, when your, your tires get shifted out of place subtly, you don't really realize it at first until you let go of the wheel. And then your car will start veering one way or another. And you go, man, there's an issue going on here. Um, and alignment issues on a car can be costly, just like complacency can be costly. If, you're on, if you have a sports team, a favorite sports team, right? One of the, you have an undefeated Patriots and they'll, oh, I hope they don't get complacent. Hope they don't drop their guard. And because complacency can cost. Um, think about it in marriage. There's seasons in marriage where you go, man, like, I, feel like, I feel like we're in the season where we're not communicating well or, or we don't really, we're just, we feel like we're kind of operating on our own and maybe lost the flicker of that romance or, or maybe it's just, it's just we just don't care much anymore. And, and remember, the opposite of love is not anger or hate. The opposite of love is apathy. And so when marriages can go through these seasons where, where, where we need to re-engage again, and if we don't, it could, it could be dangerous. And in the Christian community, think about this. Apathy breeds more apathy. And so for me personally, and I think about the next generation of my kids, like I need to continue that vigor because if I'm lukewarm and I pour my water into other water, like whether it be cold or hot, right? if I pour lukewarm water into cold water, what happens? It becomes more lukewarm. Same thing with lukewarm into hot. It becomes more lukewarm and, and apathy can breed apathy and lukewarm can breed lukewarm. And the passage pleads with us, don't stay there. Wake, like we, or he urges us to keep going. So what do we do? What do we do when we're in a spiritual rut? Or, or maybe for you, it's more like, how do we prepare your, ourselves to not fall prey? But, but what, do we, what do we do? And I think what's cool about this passage is that it moves us into this section now where it actually makes a phrase, I counsel you. So Jesus counsels us in what to do. And in and, and, and these next few verses, this is where we start leaning in and going, all right, I don't want to stay here. So God, what is your counsel? And let's look at verses 18, to, 18 through 22. God's word says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers or endures, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 18, I think, points us to our first counsel of the Lord. And it's this, to recalibrate back to the right and true source. To recognize that maybe, maybe I've been buying from the wrong source. So he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold. I counsel you to buy from me these white garments. I counsel you to buy from me salve to anoint your eyes. Buy from me and not from the world. It's sad at times that we, we wander from the true and right supplier 
Or it's as if Jesus is saying, you, started sh- you were here and you started shopping at the wrong store now. Come back. And this verse strikes at those three industries. Gold, with this link to the banking and the commerce and the, and the material wealth. The, the white garments and the, the textile industry. And you have the solve with the school of medicine and the blindness. And, and it's as if Jesus is saying, listen, you, you've attached, you've, somewhere along the way, you've attached your worth and value to material worth. Somewhere along the way, you've, you've begun to attach your identity to these outward external garments when it's only I that can cover you with anything that matters, truly. So I give you forgiveness. I cover you with my righteousness. You've got to lean into me. You can't, this doesn't come from these other things. And yeah, you have an eye powder that heals physical blindness, but only I can give you spiritual sight. And you need to see the way I see again. See with my anointing and so you get to that verse 18 and all those things come from God and are all given by his grace they all come from him and so he counsels us recalibrate back to the right and true source again and he is good to do it and to grant it to us to give it to us the second the second counsel he gives is this to take a step to fight for our affections Take a step to fight for your affections for God. And I know it's, it's an interesting phrase. It's a phrase I've just really been preaching to myself as I think about verse 19. Verse 19 has this statement, and it says this. It says this command. So be zealous and repent. But I started, I guess, how, do you, how do you grow in zeal? Like, you just summon it up. All right, I'll be more zealous for you. No, we have to fight for our affections. We need to fight to grow in zeal because zeal will only come. Like, our growing in zeal is linked to choices. Bending our affections back towards God is linked to choices. I need to do something. That's what I mean when I say fight for your affections. Take, an, take action. Take one step. Zeal grows whenever we grow more and more convinced of something. So your zeal will grow the more and more you grow convinced that Jesus is here. He is working. He's in me. He speaks. He is active. The more I grow convinced of seeing him, the more my zeal will grow because my commitment, that passionate conviction that he is real, that he is on the move will grow. Zeal, zeal grows in comparison to our assurance that he, that he is the way, that he is good, that he, he does satisfy. But but that, those moments will only come, that zeal will only grow, those affections will only grow when we start taking those steps. And so my challenge for us is this, that it has this aspiration, this inspiration to, to not stay here, but to move here, it has to move us to, to action. It has to move us some, to some type of effort. And so just like if you were in a business and you had something going on that was causing a problem, or if you were on a team and your, pro, your team was not, not working properly, what would you do? You'd get in front of a whiteboard, you'd go, What's, what do we do? Or you'd get the X's and O's out and you start creating a strategy. And what, what's the strategy that God might be prompting you in? What's that one thing to say, hey, in this season, Jesus is inviting us always to, 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 to go further up and further in with him. So what's that one thing that God might be challenging you? Go, hey, would you do this to fight for your affections for me? To start changing your, that, that zeal from here to here? And so for maybe, maybe it's, you need to readjust the way you do your quiet time. Maybe it's like, I haven't heard, I haven't heard God's voice in a while. I don't feel like, and I just need to readjust. Or maybe for you, it's, 
It's needing to remember your need. I need to remember again how, how lost I was, how broken I am, and how much you've saved me. Or maybe there's a sin that you just haven't named, you haven't really addressed, you've been holding on to. Maybe you need Christian community around you. Maybe you have some doubts. When those doubts have caused you to just push pause. And I say, don't push pause. You can't stay there. But maybe the thing for you is to start, man, lean in, start learning, research, talk to people about the doubts, let people know what you're walking with. Because it's in that effort, I think God will begin to move you, taking that one step to to fight for that affection back towards God. The third counsel we see in the, in the text, it comes from verse 20, and it's this, to keep sitting with Jesus. When you're in a spiritual rut, you need to keep going back to sitting with Jesus, taking time to read his promises, his, to read his words, to remind yourself of truth. If you look at verse 20, that's that verse that's very familiar. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Often this verse has been misunderstood as being primarily an evangelistic call to those that are unsaved to become Christians. However, knowing the context, the interpretation doesn't fit, that interpretation doesn't fit the context. This is, he's writing to believers. So this verse is a call to the complacent to repent and to hear once again. It's an, it's an invitation so cool. It's an invitation again for every individual in the church to open up themselves to Christ and invite them in to eat with him. And that's the idea of eating. I love it because it marks this true, close relationship, this, this, this intimacy that we have with, with Jesus. He's saying, would you, would you hear again? But there is a condition. Hear and open the door. And isn't it sad that at times... We leave him outside in terms of relationally, right? And sometimes we'll say things like, you know what, we, we're too busy. We, or I don't hear. Um, or I'll do it tomorrow. And I, I, encourage, I encourage you, I encourage myself, even if, it's, even if, even if we just got a margin of time, take, take a little time, sit with him, meditate on him, stop in our day. This picture is, is one of, is, one who, is, is of one who deeply loves us, is coming to the door, and we meet him readily. We're ready to open the door and say, I want to be with you. And God, would you spark that in us? So when we, what do we do when we're in a spiritual rut? I believe that Jesus uses this passage to reveal to us that spiritual renewal flows from worship and is facilitated by our work. Now, don't, don't mishear me. All spiritual renewal comes from the Lord. But in this passage, I think those two things are at play. There's this idea that it flows from worship. And what I mean, what I mean by that is not just singing songs, although that's, that could be part of it. But worship is this all-of-life activity. It's I ascribe to Jesus all worth because I know what he's done to me or done for me. And I ascribe all worth to Jesus because I know who he is the faithful and true witness, the Savior, the, the Creator. I know that he is, he is my Lord, and I, I know I'm so desperate for Him. And that's where this worship comes from. You see it in this passage as, 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 as Jesus calls us back to, buy from me. And so spiritual renewal flows from, from worship, 
but it's facilitated by work. And it's not just, again, I'm not saying just do this, do this, and it, it'll trigger everything. But I am saying it just like, just like I said earlier about sports teams, you got to create a plan. Just like in the old days, if your wagon got stuck in a rut, you have to pull it out. If your car is in the ditch, you might need to get out and push. In marriage, if your marriage is going through a season, man, you need to get together and you need to start fighting for it. You need to start dating your wife again or your spouse again. You need to do something. Our spiritual renewal is facilitated by work. It takes effort. Spiritual disciplines are not fun. I mean, sometimes spiritual disciplines are fun, but sometimes they're just hard, but they are so necessary. Discipline. I mean, it, 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 it might disrupt your life at times because God might convict us. He might call us to change. He might do these things. And so spiritual disciplines aren't always easy, but man, they're necessary as we re-trigger our heart back towards Him. In closing, let me just share one last kind of personal story um, or, or reflection. I remember it was Easter season just a few months ago, and I was in the cafe, um, and so this was back in April. And I remember one of the scripture passages that was read was, was Matthew 26, and it was the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying on the night before he was going to be arrested. And if you remember that passage, Jesus invites three of his closest disciples to come pray with him. And so he, he brings them, they stay here, and he goes off to pray um, on his own. And when he comes back to them, the passage says this, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he says, so you cannot watch for one hour? This, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And he goes off to pray again, and he comes back again, and he says, are you sleeping again? Take your rest later on. And I, I remember thinking that, God, if you want me to stay awake, if you call me to stay awake, I want to stay awake. I want to be ready for whatever you have. I want to take my rest later on because I know that you've given me now. And, and, and there's this real sense that the, the, these, these ideas of wakefulness, of staying awake, of being, being ready, like those are so a part of, of what we see in Scripture. And so this idea of, staying awake. I mean, oftentimes Paul will even reference it as, as, as pointing to our conversion. You know, in Ephesians 5, it says, arise, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's this allusion to our conversion of when you were brought to Christ, you were awoke. And then the, in our life as we live for him, and in the Gospels, Jesus uses this, this theme of staying awake to the disciples when he says, listen, don't be found asleep when your master comes, but stay awake. Um, one of my professors wrote this quote. Um, this is a professor from seminary, and it's just always stuck with me. And it says this. He uses it to describe theology and discipleship, and he says, Theology describes what we see when we are awake in faith to the reality of God, and discipleship is the project of becoming fully awake to this reality and staying awake. So as we mature in Christ, it's like we're more and more fully awake to what's real, but the goal of discipleship in the now is to stay awake. And that phrase has been really helpful for me. So as I go out from this place today, God, would you help me to stay awake? And, I, and that's tied to apathy. It's tied to complacency. It's tied to lukewarmness because I think that's the remedy. God, would you help me stay awake? Through my worship, through my work, God, I want to stay awake for you because, God, I want to live on mission with you. I want to, if I want to pass on to my kids a faith that's, that's real and alive, God, would you help me stay awake? Would it help it flow from me first?
And may God do that with us uh, as well. Um, thank you, guys. Let me, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for your love and grace that you show us, even as you uh, call us to, to keep going. And even in a letter like this, that's, that is hard and harsh at times from a certain perspective. It's you lovingly prodding us. And thank you for how you did that in my own heart. Pray that you continue to do that. But thank you, Father, that you uh, don't leave us alone to do it on our own, but God, that because of the spirit, your spirit in us, that God, we know you, we walk with you, and you help us to persevere and endure. So God, we trust you, we depend on you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.